Now, I'm going to just share a, a little bit from the scriptures. If you'd like to turn to the book of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at a few verses from verse 12. 1 Timothy 1. It's firmly planted in the New Testament. After the Gospels, after the book of Acts. Go a little bit further, go a little bit further still. And you'll get to 1 Timothy. And I love this. We, we get here, really, Paul telling, sharing... His story is quite a brief account in a way of what God has done for him, did for him in Christ Jesus. So we're going to read from verse 12 to 17 and draw a few things out. Here we go. He writes, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that reason... For that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So there we go, just a few verses. And in those few verses, it starts with worship. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. It concludes with worship. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. We have begun with worship. We are going to conclude with worship. But before we do that, we're going to spend some time looking at Paul's story. He recounts here his amazing encounter with Jesus That changed his life. The very direction of his life, the very content of his life, everything of his life uh, changed with an encounter with Jesus and in particular his amazing grace. Now, Paul at this point is not a young man. He's looking back over many years. But the passing of time, sometimes the, the, the developing of problems, lost passion in the church, doesn't dim his overwhelming sense of joy at knowing Jesus and therefore praising God. So he's writing into a challenging situation. He's writing to Timothy, his kind of beloved son, his right-hand man, who he's sent to a place called Ephesus. And clearly, I reckon Timothy just wants to go. He wants to leave. Uh, so when, uh, when Paul writes the letter, he says in verse 3, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. It's like, you kind of get the impression this is kind of like a reluctant mission. There's a problem in Ephesus. Ephesus is not an easy place to be right now because there are certain men who are teaching false doctrines. Who are, they want to be teachers of the law. They, they're kind of expressing themselves very confidently, but they are leading people down a blind alley and people are kind of losing passion. People are losing a sense of wonder. People are losing really the whole gospel and who we are. Is being compromised and diluted. And Timothy's like, this is just plain hard work. And 
Paul is the man who kind of got this church started, really, with Jesus' help. And so he's now hearing this report, thinking, oh, man, there's just massive problems here. I'm going to have to write a letter to Timothy. But right in the midst of his introduction, he just gets carried away with himself. He could have got carried away with, oh, the problems and the difficulties and the challenges. But here comes this moment, and he just, he wells up, he bursts up with praise. He's writing this letter because there's problems. He's writing this letter because there is a church that has drifted away from her foundations, drifted away from the message of grace. We looked at it last week when we saw in Nehemiah chapter 13, the people of God there were kind of like back to square one. They'd lost who they were. And right here, Paul is writing to Timothy who is in Ephesus. And it's like, you've lost who you were. You've, you've gone back a stage. You've gone back to the law. You've forgotten the grace of God. And he could have just gone down the pan, but even in the midst of these problems, even in the midst of challenges, what does Paul do? He kind of like bubbles up with worship. He bubbles up with praise. He bubbles up. He's not just got a message to bring. He's not just got information to share. He's got passion. And he's got a story to tell. And that's what we're going to look about. We're going to look at what is so amazing about grace. We sometimes sing the time-honoured hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Well, what is amazing about grace? If we don't know, we need to know. If we don't know about the, the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the most important thing for us to get hold of. And so if you hear anything today, hear this, the grace of God is amazing. Now that's going to need unpacking. Now, if you already know that, and you've known that for decades, you still need to know it. And you still need to treasure it. And cultivate that sense of wonder and awe. Really, today, that will be my only point of application. Every message really should land with a, so what? So what is know that God's grace is amazing. And allow it to bubble up in your own heart as we then continue to worship later on. But as we seek to live our lives completely as an act of worship. If we kind of like get, if we want to be kind of teachers of the law, if we lose sight of the gospel, the Christian life starts to grind like anything. I should do this, I should do that. I must do this, but I don't really want to, but it's the right thing, and other people will see if I don't, and so I've got to keep up appearances there. If we lose sight of the grace of God, if it doesn't impact us anymore, we've lost everything. And so here is Paul writing his story. I love it that he writes his story, that he shares. Because sometimes, what we most need to hear is a story, is the account of what God has done. So we see Grace explained in the passages of scripture, but we see it demonstrated in a life that was completely changed. It's like God has left, left us his word upon which his authority rests, but his word is alive, it's living, it's sharp, it's active, it does stuff. Therefore, it changes people's lives and therefore kind of scattered amongst us is evidence of God's grace when he changes someone's life. And Paul is kind of setting himself forward. He's saying, really, I'm exhibit A in the evidence that proves God's grace is amazing. So we're going to follow through what he says. We're going to look at who he was before he met Jesus, 
what happened when he met Jesus and why he, God wanted him to meet Jesus. Um, but as we kind of follow it through, we're going to discover or remind ourselves of five things that are amazing about grace. So I better speak quick um, because normally we only do three. But today, today, folks, you're getting five, five things that are amazing about grace. Let's look first of all then at who was Paul before Jesus met with him and changed his life. There's a number of places in which he shares his story. Um, this is one, but we're going to also look in Acts 26 as well. He shares there uh, kind of his background really in verses 4 and 5. He says, the Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life, in my own country, and also in Jerusalem. They'd known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. He was a religious guy. He was a Jew of Jews. He uh, also shares his story um, in Philippians and in chapter 3. And partway through verse 4, Philippians 3 and partway through verse 4, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He goes on, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. That's who he was. He now puts no store in it whatsoever. Uh, But he was clearly a religious guy. Here when he's writing to Timothy, he kind of writes it in a more shocking way. He kind of cuts to the chase and says, yes, but basically I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. He was blasphemer because he did not believe Jesus was the Christ. He thought he was a fraud. He couldn't believe that he was raised from the dead. So he spoke against him. Uh, Therefore, he was persecuting the church. And again, uh, we see that in Acts 26, where he's writing the account there. Um, In verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. That is his back story. That was his life. He is not just disinterested in Jesus. He is violently and vehemently opposed to Jesus and all who follow his way. So... He's not hiding from the person he used to be. There might be some teachers of the law who are, now that Paul is at a distance, kind of just saying, you don't need Paul, he's not impressive. His credentials don't stack up. And he's kind of saying, you don't know the half of it. He's not kind of saying, no, no, you don't understand. Really, I'm I'm, I'm a great apostle. I've got a lot to share. He's saying, no, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I was worse than you even could imagine. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent Man, he now sees in hindsight that for all his religious zeal, 
He was obsessed. And he was a violent man. That's what his acts betrayed. That on some level, he got pleasure from causing other people pain. That is pretty grim. So what is amazing about grace? The first thing that is amazing about grace, seen from exhibit A, the life of Paul, no one is beyond reach. I wasn't beyond reach. You weren't beyond reach. You aren't beyond reach now. And nobody that you know is beyond reach. If the grace of God could come and swoop down into the life of Paul, he can come into anybody's life. His grace is amazing. It's not about Jesus choosing likely candidates, the usual suspects, coming along and seeing, well, I can already see that they've already got so much about them that's quality. Uh, I'll just take them on a little bit further now. They're already a good person. I'll make them better. Now, Jesus comes to the very vilest, the most wretched. And that is what John Newton discovered for himself, the author of that hymn, Amazing Grace. And I think whenever we look back to the 18th century, if we frequently do that, everything just seems quaint. You know, the language is a bit different. People's hairdos were really peculiar. And we just kind of think everything was like a period drama, a bit grotty around the edges, but still like, oh, isn't it nice? Well, there was nothing nice about John Newton. There was nothing nice about his life. As a young boy, uh, his mother wanted to teach him truths of the Christian faith, but he soon rejected them. As a young man, a young boy really, he went to sea and in the merchant navy and at some point found himself um, involved in the slave trade. He was on a slave ship and he describes himself in these ways. I loved sin and was unwilling to forsake it. He describes himself, I was exceedingly wretched. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but I made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. He was a vile offender. And uh, again, what can be quite shocking, looking back to Paul, is that some, maybe many people who brimming over with violence, abuse and oppression, many of them will actually think they're doing the right thing. Paul thought he was doing the right thing. And if not, I mean, maybe some, their consciences would still prod them a little bit. Well, we're all masters of justifying ourselves, aren't we? Spotting the vilest offence in someone else, but managing to uh, to justify our own. Essentially, pardon the pun, we're all in the same boat. And John Newton found himself in a boat in a huge storm. And he was in danger and worried for his life. And it just so happened that day that he'd read a book, The Imitation of Christ. Now, I don't think necessarily he'd been consistently searching and reading up whatever. It's just something he found in an idle moment is the impression I, uh, I got. But as he's hitting this storm, he just realizes, I need to call out for mercy. I need to call out to the Lord. What am I doing? This is horrific, who I have allowed myself to become. Now, what's so amazing about grace is 
It's so wide. It's so big. It reaches to the furthest sea. It, it reaches um, to the darkest place, the deepest hole. Again, we had that in an interpretation of the tongue. You know, what, what could I do? I saw you, but you were righteous, and I was just in a filthy pit, and I could never get up. And what happened is Christ stepped to us. So that's who Paul was. What happened when he encountered Jesus? He has been on the rampage persecuting believers. Uh, as we just read earlier on in Acts 26, I too was convinced I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He is on that mission. He's not kind of realized and kind of five years later, Jesus has worked on his heart right at the point where he is bent on causing pain and punishment to anyone who follows Jesus. He then describes in verse 12 of Acts 26, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Um, quite a, a dramatic story. He's on the rampage, but here in verse 14, in 1 Timothy 1, he puts it slightly differently. He's describing the effect of what happens. He's saying, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So what is so amazing about grace? Number two, it is abundant. It was poured out on me abundantly, he describes. We could better describe it as the grace of the Lord was poured out on me super abundantly. It's just completely lavish. It was just completely over the top. This is who I was. This is where I was. And this is what I was doing. And what happened? The Lord Jesus poured out on me abundantly his grace, his favor. He, he says a bit earlier, I was shown mercy. I didn't deserve this. But he poured out overflowing grace, like a river that has burst its bank and flooded the countryside for miles. God's grace burst its banks and flooded Paul's life. But it didn't bring devastation and destruction. It brought new life. It brought stuff growing up. The Nile will behave itself for the most of the year. And then the floods will come. And kind of life comes. And new things grow. As a result of this epic flood. That's what's happening. That's what happened here. Uh, for Paul. So what happens in a story called Les Miserables, or Les Mis? Can I just call it that? Um, you may have read the book, hands up, didn't think so. You may have seen the musical, uh, or you may have watched the film. Okay, I don't mind. <laughs> it's a dramatic story. Early on in that story, we meet, obviously, an ex-con, Jean Valjean. He has been imprisoned for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread, but he's probably got himself into all sorts of mischief. And so he has only just been released after 19 years. A broken man, 
really a labelled man, a hopeless man. He's trying to build a new life, but he's got these papers which make it very, very clear. This is another 18th century bad boy. And uh, however quaint it might appear at times, it's just grim. His life has no hope. Now, eventually, he's taken pity on by a bishop, a bishop whose name is Bishop Welcome, um, in effect. And he does welcome in, in, and he doesn't ask awkward or difficult questions. He doesn't kind of just frown at him suspiciously. He shows him hospitality. He feeds him, gives him a, a bed for the night. So he extends so much warmth. Um, and so what does Jean Valjean do? He, he wakes up early and he spots that there are silver plates. And he thinks, I, I can't make it straight. To make my break, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal those. And I'm going to make a run for it. He does exactly that. He makes a run for it. The bishop is woken in the morning to come down to find um, the police, or whatever they were called in the 18th century. Uh, they were probably bad boys too. But anyway, um, bringing him bringing him back. We've found him, scruff of the neck. And he's got these silver plates. And they're yours. And this is what then the bishop says. At that point, Jean Valjean would have been expecting the guillotine, not expecting grace. The bishop says, ah, there you are. I'm glad to see you, but I gave you the candlesticks also, which are silver like the rest and would bring 200 francs. Why did you not take them along with your plates? He has just encountered a flood of grace. And Philip Yancey writing the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, just says the world is thirsty for grace. Sometimes it would appear the world is thirsty for retribution and justice to be done. Well, maybe, but be that as it may, the world is also thirsty for grace. We see it there just in a fictional story. We see it more potently and powerfully from the author of grace himself, the Lord Jesus, arresting Paul and saying, ah, there you are. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You kind of think, what was he expecting at that point in time? Okay, come in, your time is up, that's it, you've had enough, you've done enough damage. You are out of here. It's the guillotine for you. No. Christ comes to him and pours out abundant grace. And so, there's real change. His ignorance, unbelief, and his hatred get replaced. In their place, he receives grace, faith, and love. So what is so amazing about grace? It is powerful. It actually changes lives. Paul is able to say, my old identity, who I used to be, is gone. I once was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. Now I'm a servant of Christ. My, the direction of his life has changed entirely. A new direction, a new purpose, and a new identity. Now, is that an experience unique to Paul? Well, some of his experiences were unique. He was on the road to Damascus. He was heading there to persecute believers. He saw a bright light from heaven. He was arrested by the visible presence of a resurrected Jesus saying, what on earth are you doing? Now come and follow me. Now, 
that won't be everybody's experience, having our attention arrested in that way. But you see here in, in 1 Timothy, Paul is not saying, this is precisely what happened to me, I was on the road to Damascus. He's saying, look, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, and therefore he goes on to say the first of a few trustworthy sayings. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He's saying, look, I'm just exhibit A, but there's something bigger here. It's not just about my story. Here, in that verse, is the whole gospel in a nutshell. And the whole gospel is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came to demonstrate abundant grace to more. This is worthy. This deserves full acceptance. This is not just for a few people to accept. This is for everybody to accept. Therefore, not only is the grace of God amazing because no one is beyond reach, not only is it amazing because his grace is so abundant, not only is it amazing because God's grace is so powerful, it's amazing because God's grace is available for all Everybody, nobody excluded, not a select few. This is hope for me, hope for you, hope for your friend, hope for your neighbor, hope for an entire city, hope for your family, hope for everyone. Amazing, abundant grace that is available to everybody who calls on his name. Is this good news? Is this good stuff. This is wonderful. Now, you might think, well, okay, but it does still sound a little bit gloomy. Because he says, of whom I am the worst. Well, I thought you said he was. He was the worst. That was his old identity. What about now, I am the worst? Does that mean that the Christian life is a wonderful experience of grace, but you're still kind of left just feeling bad about yourself? You're still left just feeling perpetually guilty and gloomy. Praise the Lord, my old identity is gone. I was so bad. I am, I I was so bad. And it's just full of, uh, of gloom, feeling forlorn. I'm unworthy. I look back to who I was and I'm convinced I was wretched. But in so doing, I'm kind of just arguing myself out of believing and knowing I'm in grace. I'm just wretched. Well, yes. We were. Maybe even in some aspects, there are ways in which that wretchedness still occasionally manages to demonstrate um, itself. So uh, are we just to go around saying, I'm preoccupied with how bad I was and still am? Well, Paul here is not wallowing in his awfulness, past, present, or future. Remember, this began as thanksgiving. I thank God. It concludes with worship. Now to the King, the eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He's excited. He is enjoying the grace of God, even in the midst of having to write a letter into a grim situation. He is absolutely stoked. Now, why did God save him through Jesus? Why did Jesus encounter him? He goes on to describe. He, he, we've looked at the gospel in a nutshell, available to all. He then kind of returns and 
as it were, to exhibit A. And says, yeah, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So, Jesus has used me, Paul is saying, to be an example. Was he the very, very worst of sinners? Is that what we're supposed to agree with? Paul was the worst. That's what the Bible says. Well, it's not necessarily the case. I'm not sure that he was doing a careful study of everybody's sin in the past and in the future. How would he look into that? How would he... uh, see the horrors that the 20th and the 21st century have brought up. I don't think he was making a scientific study of sinfulness. He was just saying, I personally reached the point where all those comparisons didn't matter at all. I realized my utter sinfulness. Um, That's the case for us. We're not trying to kind of rank ourselves in some, well, I'm sinful, but I'm not that bad. And therefore, God's grace is good, but it's not that good. Um, No, he's, he's saying this is... He was shown potent grace. He knows he was uh, wretched. He was made an example of. So that we might, again, we get to see the evidence. This is what happens when God gets hold of someone's life. But is it still an example of false humility? We, we detect false humility so quickly. Or we perceive it very quickly. Is he really thanking God? Or is he just boasting in himself? I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, that he has given me strength, that he considered me faithful. You see, God realized I was a bit ignorant, but I was zealous. Underneath it all, there was some good in me uh, because I was faithful. He realized I would be faithful. He realized there was a conversation in heaven where Jesus and the angels said, well, what are we going to do now? Jesus, you're back here. Um... But how are we going to have this gospel spread? Well, you see that Paul, he's really gifted. He's theologically really sharp. And he's passionate as anything. If we can just come in, if we can just interrupt him for a moment, distract him from his dastardly plans, uh, then just perhaps we manage to win him over to our side of the argument. And he could be a real force for good, you know. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that, because he is our only hope. We've got to do it. We've got to rescue Paul. It's not that clear. No no such conversation has taken place. What Paul is saying is not, I had some credit before God. Look, I'm faithful. I I may have been a bad man, but I had good intentions down deep. Now he realizes, yeah, I was ignorant to an extent. I didn't understand what I was doing. I wasn't aware of the full facts. I was in unbelief. There were just things I would refuse to believe anyway. So I was opposed to God, but he showed me mercy. He's expressing wonder. It's more like him saying, this is amazing. Christ Jesus poured out his grace even on me. He even considered that I would be entrusted with this. Think of Jean Valjean. He he gets back to uh, the bishop's house and he's given yet more silver. He's an ex-con. He's like, I th- thank you that you should even consider me 
when dishing this out. That's what Paul is saying. That he should even have considered me to receive this silver, this gold, this wonderful, amazing grace. And so what then is amazing about grace? Fifthly and finally. There you go. It wasn't too bad, was it? Uh, fifth and final. What is so amazing about grace? Well, it's for purpose. God has plans in mind. He had plans in mind for Paul that he might set him forth as an example. I want to demonstrate the grace of God in your life so that that grace impacts other lives as well. But he begins, doesn't he? I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, even appointing me to his service. There was purpose in mind. It wasn't just like my old chemistry lessons. GCSE chemistry lessons, I had an excellent teacher. Um, he was very good. He knew his stuff really, really thoroughly. And, as a, and, and kind of going through that year of chemistry, a subject I didn't enjoy great, my textbook, my, my own kind of work, looked amazing. But you know why? It's because he dictated absolutely everything. Once in a blue moon, he would conduct an experiment and you would get to watch. That was as exciting as it got. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, you're supposed to have fun in a chemistry lesson, aren't you? You're supposed to learn by doing, but that wasn't his method. No, you learn by just watching me. Well, the grace of God, you can think, yeah, oh, it's wonderful, amazing grace. Now, just watch Jesus. Now he says, come and follow me. We're not just going for a walk. There's real stuff that I've appointed you to. Now, for Paul, that took a certain shape, but he's, he's using a pretty general term, saying... He appointed me to his service. He got me involved. He has used me. And I'm just so thankful because he's always remembering God's grace. He's always remembering who he was. He's always remembering where he would have been if Jesus had never intervened. And therefore, he's absolutely gobsmacked with the grace of God. Why did God save me? It's for purpose. And this is the grace, again, it doesn't just reach to one or reach to a few. It's for all. So in a sense, Paul, in this letter, has just gone off on one. Because he's going to get back to task about saying, here's how you're going to approach these challenges, these difficulties that are going on there in Ephesus. But in a sense, it's not a pointless digression. Everything is about the grace of God. And if the church in Ephesus loses sight of God's grace... It would lose everything. As even it's potential, it's, it's possible rather that it was the elders of that church who were going off tangent and starting to become teachers of the law rather than living examples of grace. And so, in a sense, there's that message: I want you to be a living example of grace, not a teacher of the law. I don't want you to try and be above it all somehow. You're to demonstrate: No, this is real for me. Paul, the great apostle, says. I needed this grace. Timothy, you needed this grace. City Church, we needed this grace. If you don't know this grace, or if you not know Jesus, and you've not come to this moment where you can say, yes, the, the grace of God was poured out upon my life, that's what you most need to know. That's what you most need to hear. It's the most important thing in life, is to know that God's grace in Jesus is for you, not against you. 
if he could reach his arm into the life of Paul, he can do it for you too. If he can change the direction of Paul's life completely and give him a completely new identity, he can do that for you as well. And if he can take Paul and make something into him, oh, I'm not sure, my grammar goes awry sometimes. Um, If he can make something of Paul that does good for others, he can do that in anyone's life. You are not beyond the grace of God. And we are not beyond the grace of God. So in a few moments, we are going to worship the Lord. The point of today is God's grace is amazing. Let's remember that it's amazing. But before concluding, I just want to go back. You will remember that I mentioned that on the 18th of July, when we gather on a Friday evening to pray downstairs, we're going to be praying for the Rushworth family who are going uh, to Canada, to, to near Toronto, to be part of a church there. And I just think there's something in this for you guys, which is Paul is able to write, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Your credentials for going are that you are examples of God's grace. Your credentials, the reason for you going is because that's what you have received and that's what you embody. You're not going to be teachers of 1 Timothy style. You're going to be yourselves, having received, continuing to enjoy, and also then to impart um, the grace of God. Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, I'm going to say it again, who has given me strength. Paul, Timothy, the whole of the church have a calling because of the grace of God that is above their own abilities, their own resources. But he is the one who keeps giving. That's what we, that's what we see here. Paul is expressing amazement. Um, God has plans in mind for us that are simply too big for us, but God keeps on giving. His plans, his strength, his faith, his love, his life. And he calls us uh, to follow him. And for all of us, none of us want to allow uh, religion to rob us of what we have been given in his wonderful grace. So we're going to respond um, in worship. And if the band would like to come up, that would be wonderful.